Hello and welcome to Curator Chats. My name is Billy Wallwinkle. I'm an assistant curator and oral historian for the Detroit Historical Society, and I'm also a graduate student in Wayne State's public history program. I get asked a lot, what exactly is public history? And I had that same question myself when I was approached about the program. And if you don't know what public history is, that's perfectly fine. That's what we're here for. Each episode, I'm going to be talking to a different public history practitioner about their work in the city of Detroit. Journalists, anthropologists, historians, museum educators, artists, educators. There are so many great people doing public history work that don't really consider themselves public historians, but their work counts nonetheless. I want each episode to offer a different avenue for people who want to get into this work. There are so many amazing opportunities out there for future public historians, and if one of these episodes can provide inspiration to the next generation, mission accomplished. Thank you all for joining me. I hope you enjoy these really fantastic chats because they are my favorite people. Their work is amazing. And I hope you enjoy yourselves as much as I got to. In this episode, I sit down for a chat with historian and all-around museum nerd, Toby Voigt. Toby is the Community Engagement Director at the Michigan History Center up in Lansing. But before that, she was my boss at the Detroit Historical Society as our Chief Curatorial Officer. We chat about the importance, the expense, and the expectations that come with conferences. I also prod her about the perks and pitfalls of working at a state institution and all the expectations that come along with it. And we talk about where we think and hope the museum field is heading. Here's my chat with Toby. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today, Toby. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, so full disclosure, uh, Toby was my boss when uh, she was also at the Detroit Historical Society. Uh, she plucked me out of the gift shop and got me working in oral histories, which is where I'm still at today. So it's awesome. Yay. Uh, one, one of the other things that you did for me was take me to my first conference. I'd never been to an academic conference or a professional conference that uh, ever because I also started at the society when I was still doing my undergrad so I didn't really have those opportunities yet for for students who are really interested in getting involved in the, the history field how important are conferences I think they're absolutely essential I think um in a lot of ways the field is changing um so things are kind of shaken up right now as they should be you know this with this um kind of kicking out the old school way of doing things and, and embracing um, more new and diverse perspectives. But for me, you know, I got my job going, but what really made a difference for me was getting involved, um, particularly for me in the American Association for State and Local History, um, which is, um, I cannot explain to you how and why it exists outside of the national, you know, the public history uh, group, because they overlap in a lot of things that they do. Um, MPCH, yeah, National Council on Public History, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, my former boss uh, in New York, when I came to Detroit, suggested, or my new boss, well, both of them suggested that it was um, time for me to get involved. So they put me in touch with one of the staffers at that national organization, um, and he put me on a committee 
Um, most of these organizations are, are, you know, the staffing is scrappy, but in the main work done influencing and changing the field is done on volunteer committees. Um, so I got on the educators and interpreters committee and from there everything just exploded. I met so many um, people who were, you know, working in small to mid-sized history museums that just, you know, were dealing with how do I handle this with an audience issue or how do I talk about slavery with, you know, third graders. And it, it ended up becoming a network of folks. And at the time it was all peers, people on my same level. But as we've advanced in the field, some of these people are now becoming directors of major institutions. And uh, it feels nice to be able to have that, that connection from back in the day as we've advanced in our careers. Because as you move up in management, there are new challenges and new struggles. And it's nice to be able to have folks um, to talk to who can support you, who know exactly what you're going through. Were you involved with these organizations? Like, did you attend the conferences before you got involved at these higher levels? Yeah, yeah. I had started to go to AASLH conferences um, when I was a graduate student. No, yeah, I think that was the first one when I was in graduate school for museum studies. Uh, they came to New York. Uh, then a colleague and I went to one in Atlanta because they move around the country every year and really enjoyed them, but I was on the sidelines. And so I think my first year in Detroit, which was 2010, um they tapped me to be a volunteer blogger for the conference <laughs> this just ages me a little bit because what that was 11 years ago and um one of their main outreach methods was doing guest you know doing blogs and so I got to blog about my experiences as a relatively emerging museum professional at that time going to this professional conference and I was encouraged just to blog about my experiences and what I thought and if I went to a great session and that was great because um, I'm pretty shy in some regards so it was just a great way for me to kind of introduce myself without having to go to those awkward receptions where you have to step up to people who clearly have known each other for a long time and be like, hi, I'm so-and-so, you know, um, that's where the working on volunteering on committees, you have a reason to be talking to these people. <laughs> so. Yeah. And that's one of the things I'm really bad about at conferences. I feel like I never get my money's worth because I go to my sessions, I do the luncheons and then I'm like, okay, so I'm going to go to a bar now and then hang out. <laughs> I think by myself because part of it part of it's like the introvert in me where I'm like I have been around people since 7 30 in the morning and I need to get away but also I'm in a new city I should probably be meeting with people I don't know but it's always making that that first step yeah oh my gosh I I totally agree I, I ugh, the same way and it helped you know the first few I just kind of you know globbed onto my boss and was like Oh, hey, can I hang out with you and your friends? But then once I joined the committee and started doing work, this the committees for ASLH do conference sessions. So you are working to put together a luncheon and a conference session. And so that's great. And then you, you build the network that way and you meet people that way. And then when you get to the conference, you're actually meeting and working with each other. And it actually got to a point, um, I did end up being tapped for leadership. And so I was on the board of the organization for a while, um, 2017 through 2019, I believe, uh, two-year term, and that was phenomenal. You know, where you, you know, that I got to do that at at such a young a young age, relatively speaking. Um, that was fantastic. And then I've served on several other committees. Uh, the big one for that organization is they did the joint conference with the Michigan Museums Association in 2016 in Detroit. And so I worked on the host committee for that to ensure that 
um, all the events and programs and the way we showcased uh, the city and its amazing history uh, was done well. And most of my friends within the field who came to that conference still say it's one of the best ones they ever went to. So I'm proud. <laughs> that was the first major conference I had ever been to. Uh, I can't remember if I went to the local local history conference before that or not, but I just remember being being down there and going, this is far more official than I thought it was going to be. And having all of like this, the different prestigious universities and museums have people there. Then I was like, no wonder my session wasn't accepted. <laughs> <laughs> this is not this is not a small town game anymore. <laughs> no, yeah. The national conferences are big. And that's the exciting thing. So I, I will have to admit it's funny because I was I, I totally identify with what you're saying about going and you just don't have quite a network yet and you go to all the sessions and you're just emotionally drained and you're like I don't want to talk to people and then yeah I got involved in these these groups and it got to a point about maybe three or four years ago where I'd go to these conferences and I wouldn't go to any sessions I would just hang out with people <laughs> and and come up with huge ideas and big projects and um which we would do things you know um you know, collaboratively uh, working. I, you know, it was because one of the connections that I made uh, through educators and interpreters committee, oh gosh, I'm going to say it was 2012, 2013. Um, she works for Ford's theater in DC and they were doing a remembering Lincoln project, uh, uh, basically a website dedicated to uh, pulling together how Americans mourned president Lincoln. And we were talking and I was like, Detroit Historical Society wants to be a part of that. It's just like, okay. And so we got into the grant project at the ground floor. We were one of the first like 12 uh, museums across the country to um, put things in our collection into their robust website. And it was just really cool. So it was a great way, not only to network, to influence, to, to uplift, you know, the organization I'm working for and to build its reputation on a national scale, um, but also to make those connections with people and work on cool things. One of the... Uh... Um, one of the things that I was really grateful for when I was working at the society is the help in getting to the conference because they are often sometimes very expensive. Yes. What was it like as a grad student going to these and becoming involved? Like there are people who I've talked to who are just like, I can't go to conferences. I can't afford that. Uh, like during your time with ASLH, what were some of the barriers that you noticed? I know are those barriers still there today. That's an excellent question. And it's particularly timely. And I think this kind of just shows generational difference. You know, I'm hardcore Gen X. And so I was raised by people who said you had to pay your dues and you just had to take your lumps and swallow them. And it never occurred to me to question that until I started working with millennials who were like, this is stupid. And, I, and at first I remember thinking, no, you have to pay your dues. And then I, then my thought was like, why would I want anybody to go through what I'm going through? And I say that to preface this, it is 2021. I finally paid off, made the last payment on a large credit card debt that I incurred going to conferences and pursuing my career. I had charged up thousands of dollars on my credit card in order to go. And I can't tell you how much an in interest I paid in that. Um, but that was just something, it was a sacrifice I was willing to make in order to have these opportunities, right? And why would I want to not change our field to become more equitable and to encourage people from all walks of life to go to these conferences? Because that sucks, you know? It sucks it took me all these years to do that. And I, I graduated, I went, graduated graduate school in 2006. So it's, you know, it took more than a decade to pay off some of this debt. Um, the, the, the pandemic helped. I haven't been able to go to a professional conference in two years, so that helped. I didn't incur any more debt. So anyway, so that's that question about how I dealt with it. Um, I do not recommend 
that that path. But the good news is I do think the field is changing. There is some hesitancy there. There's still, um, we're, at, we're at a turning point in the fields where, you know, a lot of the established, um, you know, leaders are beginning to retire and, and there's more openness, I think, to kind of changing the way things are done. Um, I had a lot to say about how associations chose to fundraise, reaching out to these, you know, millennials and Gen Xers who were, you know, saddled with student loan debt and all this stuff and trying to help them understand that you can't just use your same old fundraising appeal because it's just not going to work on us, you know. Um, but I do see a lot of effort being made um, by these organizations to consider different formats to provide, raise funds to provide more scholarships for people for different reasons. Um, and, and that helps, but it, it's still going to be expensive. Like I'm not able to make it to their conference in um, Little Rock this September, um, which is okay. It's like the hotbed of COVID right now in the country. So I feel really bad. My friend Michelle is the is on the con she she wrote the theme the annual theme she's the host program committee chair but you know what they're doing a virtual conference and that's fine it's hard it's you don't the networking suffers when you do it virtually but if you're going to to learn about best practices in the field and really cool innovative projects it's better than nothing I, I've, I've known a few people who were fortunate enough to win some of the scholarships and I remember not understanding that in the beginning going you needed a scholarship to go to a conference I was like wait like how much is this conference and they'd be talking about like AA or something and like the ticket alone was like $800 plus their flight plus the hotel and I was like I think the cost of your conference is at the time was the cost of the car that I was driving <laughs> I totally agree it's so funny you know uh, we haven't talked about American Alliance for Museums it is like the leader you know I I, I will say that I chose uh, AASLH because I'm a history nerd and they do state and local history I'm a local history nerd you know state history is is as big as I want to get, it's it's too much, you know. Um, but uh, AAM is like, you know, that's the grand, it's the big show. Um, you know, they do everything from, you know, do accreditation for museums, and and they're that set the standards for best practices for museums. And they just recently did a huge survey of the membership. And it's so funny you should mention that because the last time I went to an MMA conference, I just remember I was so struck by the production value, like the all the fancy graphics and the like the trade show had like platforms with conversation lounges. And it was just like, I felt like I was at like a tech conference or something. And I remember thinking this conference cost $800 so they could put on all this fanfare. And so in my survey response to them, I said, you would be more equitable if you cut out some of this like frou-frou, la-la stuff and really just focus on the message and the content because there's just there's just no excuse for charging $800 for a conference. I don't want to sit in the conversation lounge and get sold a compact shelving unit for my collection storage. No, nope, no thanks. <laughs> Excellent use of frou-frou. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> but no, I, I completely get, especially, oh man, your comment about the being sold something. There's nothing worse for me than going to a session and then 15 minutes in reali realizing it's a sales pitch. And I was like, how is is Lansing from 1850 to 1860. Like, how did this turn into a sales pitch? Yeah, great. Now I have to be the, the one who has to stand up and pretend I'm going to the bathroom, but really leaving. <laughs> You know, it's so funny. I've been on so many conference committees for ASLH and uh, I have such a, 
I will, I will use the word bias because, um, because I have such an inflexible opinion of what makes a good conference session. And I hate, I hate more than anything, the sales pitch that's designed is not a sales pitch. And then right up there with that is the case study, particularly from a gigantic institution like the Smithsonian or Minnesota Historical, where they were like, well, we did this amazing thing, but our seven full-time evaluators were able to help us do the research for this. And you're like, Yay, I'm so glad I came here to listen to you brag about something that could never be replicated by any museum in the world because we don't have the resources you have. So, so it's funny when I, the times I've been on programs committee, I'm like, that has to have an app, you know, a, a practical something that people can take home and try. And it has to be scalable for like the volunteer run two people museums need to be able to implement part of it. And the, you know, Smithsonian's need to be able to get something out of it. So I got my way a lot of times, but thankfully, because most of the folks in ASLH agree, but occasionally one slips by. <laughs> it, all I'm thinking about right now is talk between like the, the level of production, like the production value. So what I'm thinking about right now is the production value that goes into conferences. But one of my personal pet peeves, and I've been preaching about this to Wayne State students, is the production value that goes into presentations and slides from presenters. Yes. And if, if there's a third thing to spoil it, it's someone with all of their presentation on the slides, like full text. Yes. Uh, that's all. I just wanted to complain about that because I've been complaining about it to Wayne State students for a while now. Yep. It's funny that, you know, I totally agree with you, actually. Um, so I got my history degree at Oakland University. Uh, as a non-traditional student, I went back in 2002 to 2004. So I graduated in 2004. And at that time that I was part of um, Biofa Theta, sorry, is that, is that with my short-term memory, COVID brain, the that, that History, right. Honor, History Honor Society. So we did the um, conference, the annual regional conference and Wayne State was always part of it. So Wayne State and Oakland. And so uh, I was presenting my research on the um, decline of the inner urban uh, into the Detroit area in the early 20th century. And I, what blew my mind is at this point at history conferences, and I think it still is, there wasn't even PowerPoints. It was, I'm just going to stand at this podium and read you my paper. And so I was like, what the heck? And so what I had done, and actually I looked back and I was like, good on me, you know, so to brag a little bit, is that I had made a PowerPoint, but all it had was images on it. And each slide was an image that would show or illustrate what I was talking about. And that was it. So I had the visual aids to show the routes and the postcards and the things like that. And I thought that was so much more effective and I credit one of my history so much more effective one of my history professors I think he's still a professor at Oakland Todd Estes he just I've never met a professor that had like what he would do is we would do readings and secondary sources and then we read um, it was early American Republic so we read William Cooperstown uh, by Alan Taylor one of my favorite books of all time uh, as kind of the context the case study of kind of what was going on in America through the lens of Cooperstown, New York at this time period. And then we did secondary and then, or then we read primary sources. And then his lectures were all the secondary sources that tied everything together. And I thought it was such a great balance instead of going home and reading a textbook and then coming to class and having him recite the textbook, we read the primary sources and then he wove it all together. When I think when I was putting my presentation together, I was like, okay, the bulk of the content is in what I'm saying. I don't want to replicate that. I want to, you know, uh, punctuate that. Anyway, yes, I could go on and on about my personal thoughts on the <laughs> format of presentations for conferences or whatever. <laughs> Remember people save your copy for the pitch, save your pictures for the presentation. Yes. Excellent advice. Want to know more about Detroit's history, but you don't know where to start? Don't worry. I got you covered. 
head on down to the Detroit Historical Museum and the Dawson Great Lakes Museum to learn all there is to know about the city, where it's been, where it is, and you might even get some hints on where it's going. You can start your trip today at DetroitHistorical.org. Don't pass it up. Detroit starts here. Interested in exploring a career in history but don't know where to start? It's time for you to go visit Wayne State University, a premier research university in the heart of Detroit. Wayne is home to historians ready to introduce to you what history, public history, and digital humanities has to offer. Check out their work today on Twitter at History at Wayne. For thousands of years, Michigan has been home to a lot of people, from the Anishinaabe to the French to the Finns. There's just so much history there, if only... If only there was a place where you could learn about all of these different people and how Michigan became the state that it is today. Just kidding, there totally is a place. If you're interested in learning more about Michigan history and especially how Michigan developed into the place that it is today, then head on up to the Michigan History Center up in Lansing. The Michigan History Center is home to the Michigan History Museum and the Archives of Michigan. There is something for everyone. Learn more about their work today on Facebook and at michigan.gov forward slash MHC. So you are unfortunately no longer my boss <laughs> because you made the giant leap to statehood. So you yes. are now at the State uh, History Museum. Yes. When most people think of a history degree, they think of museums. And usually they think of these kind of larger institutions. What is it like working at, at a state institution? Is there as much red tape as some people might expect there to be? Yes. Because <laughs> personally, that's like, I say the same thing about the Henry Ford. Like I could never work at the Henry Ford because I know that I'm not allowed to say the controversial thing most of the time. I have to like do kind of the straight and narrow. So what are the pitfalls? What are the, are there any positives to that? Oh yeah, there certainly are. It's, it's been really interesting because my, um, my personality has always been, I mean, if I had to pick a, a philosophy, it's been, um, you know, act first and beg for forgiveness later. Just go with those big, hairy, audacious ideas and test them out. And, and to a lot of extent, our leadership, our, Sandra Clark has been the director of the Michigan History Center for decades. And she thankfully has earned, she's got a rep, huge reputation in the museum field, history museum field in general. She's just very highly regarded for good reason. Um, she excels at knowing how to navigate state government. And because she's so competent, she's earned trust with our parent department is the Department of Natural Resources. They basically, for the most part, allow us to kind of do our own thing. They understand that while in some in many states it makes sense that the history and culture is placed in the Department of Natural Resources. In fact, some, like North Carolina, is called the Department of Natural and Cultural Resources. Most of the folks that in our department come from natural sciences and they're just like, okay, we don't really understand what you're doing, which is great because they just let us do our thing. But you know, there are certain things with, you know, any, you know, anytime we needed to spend money, it's like filling out forms and triplicate and going through approvals, and there's certain thresholds that I'm allowed to spend and you know just stuff that takes a while. I, I've been here for four years now and there's still times with my staff who've been here for like 20 years. I'm like, okay, we're going to go from A to B. And they're like, well, actually we can't because we have to like 
follow this statute or follow this policy or whatever. And I'm like, okay, maybe by year five, I'll have it all figured out, you know, but the benefit of it, the benefit of being part of the state. Well, for us, it's a couple of things. We are very small. We are very scrappy. We have actually, when I took the job, when I left the Detroit Historical Society to come up to the state, I left an, a, you know, a city-based regional history institution to come to a state agency that has fewer full-time employees than Detroit Historical Society does. And we run 12 historic sites throughout the entire state of Michigan, plus the archives of Michigan, which is the repository for all state and government records. So we're spread super thin and there's not enough resources to do anything. But the benefit of that, the benefit of that is that because we're so small and scrappy, when COVID hit and everything um, you know, shut down. We lost a ton of money in earned revenue and school field trips and like everybody did and are hurting for it, but we didn't have to lay off any full-time employees because when they were looking at the budget numbers, they're like, oh, their payroll is like a rounding error in the department of natural resources budget. So we did get, um, put on furlough one day a week all through last summer, but, but we all came through. Okay. And our part-time workforce did get furlough. Well, no, they just did. They weren't given hours. They were never, they never laid off. They just weren't given hours. They qualified for their unemployment, but they all came back when we reopened. So anyway, I'm now I'm just rambling. I'm not even giving you a clear answer because I have a lot of different thoughts about this. I, I can't really compare our situation with like other big state organizations because we're just in a different place. I, I liked to joke when I came into Detroit Historical, I was hired as the director of education in a rebuilding phase because in 2006, the city walked away from the history museum system and gave the keys to the 10 person Detroit Historical Society. And they spent, you know, you know, by the time they hired me in 2010, it'd been four years of trying to rebuild. And they finally brought, you know, brought up enough money to be able to hire another full-time person to help them. And so I joined. In 2017, I leave Detroit Historical to come to a, a state institution that in 2009, the governor completely absolved and the Department of History, Arts, and Libraries, um, which would serve a lot of the purposes like a big state history museum system. So we included the Library of Michigan, the museum, the archives, the state historic preservation office, a field services, they were all kind of split up and sent off into different directions. So the museum system and the, and the archives landed with the natural resources, the library landed with the Department of Education, the poor state historic preservation office landed with the Michigan State Housing and Development Authority. And so now we're all kind of splintered and scattered and then 25% of the staff lost their jobs. So when they hired me, they hired me in rebuilding. So I feel like that's my career is kind of coming into small under-resourced organizations that have gone through trauma and try to help rebuild to something big in the future. I have like, I feel like 15 follow-ups to that because <laughs> to me, that sounds incredibly daunting to be a person that goes into an organization during a rebuilding time. Do you find that you still get to be a historian or do you find that you get that you're more of an administrator? Where, where should people expect like their workload to be? That's, that is such a good question. That is such a good question. I think um, when I came into Detroit because it was smaller and we weren't trying to do so much. I got to, I came in as a manager level. I got to do a little bit of both. I got to do, do the bossy things and the administrative things and try to build the infrastructure and, and, you know, but I also got to still be a doer, still got to be a historian. I built, I built the building Detroit website. I don't even know if that still works. <laughs> Because technology changes, but um, you know, um, won an AAM Muse Award for that, 
it's actually behind me in my office. So, but uh, this job is a whole new ball game. It's this, it's a lot of administrative, it's all administrative, uh, particularly because they brought me in to head a brand new department that we're still, it's still, we're suffering some growing pains. We're still trying to figure out who we are. So we've got three different divisions of the history center. One is the museums and the museum systems. We have a museum director who, who does the collections, oversees all the historic sites, exhibits, all of that stuff. Then we have the archives. Our state archivist is the lead of that. They do all the archival stuff for the state of Michigan and for historic records. And then they made this third unit called the engagement unit that I oversee. And we have the responsibilities to not only provide services for the other two units, but we have our own. And I kind of describe it as we are the um, public facing. I, my unit provides all the public facing work, visitor services for our Lansing Museum, all of our museum stores all across the state. I do. I am the full-time marketing person for the entire agency. Um, all of the public programs and K-12 education programs done are part of my team and certain statewide programs, particularly right now, our Heritage Trail program uh, is managed out of my department. The historical markers is still managed out of Sanders' department because she knows if she gave that to me, my head would explode. <laughs> But eventually that'll come over in the engagement unit. So we'll be doing statewide. We do statewide programs. Oh, and then any community outreach we do. So a perfect example is, you know, we inherited from the state legislature, the house that Ulysses S. Grant lived in for a hot minute in Detroit. And uh, it's now been, they mandated that we preserve it. It's been put in Easter market. It's not my project, but I'm the one working on it. So everybody thinks it's my project because my role is to do the community engagement. And that's what's needed right now to get out and talk to people and find out what people think and feel about it. And especially in an era where everything that's a monument is rightfully being called into question, is it the right time to be putting up another quote unquote monument, a physical house that's associated with a, a white slave owner, to be honest. So kind of unpacking that, that's the closest I get to do is history right now is working on that Grant House project. <laughs> oh, that sounds so daunting. Because like when I started the society and up until maybe like a few years ago, I was so shielded from management. And I always, I always joked that I didn't know if it was because I was so busy doing like oral history work or if just because I was so inexperienced or like it's not worth the time to have him do it I'll just do it <laughs> but I didn't have to do budgets or scheduling I got I got pointed where to be and it was glorious <laughs> and now I'm doing more admin and stuff like that because we've like we've had some people like move away and stuff like that retire it's just a changing ball game like, it's not bad but it's definitely changing like that's one of the reasons why I really want to chat with people and do this podcast so students can have at least some level of expectation about what it's like actually working in these spaces aside from doing internships because even internships are cost prohibitive uh you need to have a job that's flexible enough that allows you to have an internship and yep. in the age of covid you can't go visit people or do workshops yeah one more quick question about working in the state system mm -hmm. when if you're writing for exhibits or writing for copy what is the pressure like because like for me i i work in contentious history i do race relations and all that stuff but i'm pretty sure all also, my audience is pretty local. Uh, I don't often have elected officials if they're mad or anything like that poking through my work. So what is what, what is it like having all that weight on you when you're writing for your job? That is, again, another great question. Um, I always like to try to look for the silver linings. And I know I've been kind of like, oh, state government bureaucracy is because, you know, it is. When you love history, it's like the last thing you want to do. But one of the benefits of our current our situation is that we aren't as publicly visible as, say, you know, the state systems you're hearing, and I'm thinking particularly of Minnesota and all the controversy about their interpretation of Fort Snelling um, and critical race theory and all that crazy stuff. At this point, we we have we don't have a lot of backlash. And since I do all the marketing,
marketing include managing all of our social media and I'm out there talking to the public. I'm right now probably more than anybody tuned into what people think and feel about us. And so far it's been really it's not been hard. And I'm also incredibly grateful. And this is actually the, the reason why I chose to leave Detroit to come here is that Sandra Clark and our, our, our leader, she really in her heart and soul embraces all of this movement towards diversity, equity, inclusion, and changing how we tell history. And that started before I even came with a Kellogg grant, a Kellogg grant to redo how we talked about the Anishinaabe uh, in the first part of the museum from a very Western colonial uh, cultural anthropology you know, specimen way to actually talking about the people that are still here, that really informs our work. So I would say probably the first big test of, hey, as the state agency, are we allowed to take an editorial stance on the history we present? Or do we have to quote unquote, tell the neutral story, which as we all know, is the white supremacist dominant culture story, because museums and history is not neutral, as we know, we know. A couple of years ago, before COVID, we took a traveling exhibition on incarceration and the states of incarceration and the problem with the, the, the need for criminal justice reform. And it had a very strong editorial stance, progressive editorial stance about, you know, the, the school to prison pipeline and all of these different issues. You know, there's so many different issues. And we worked with Michigan State to add a panel to it and we installed it and we invited legislatures and people came. And in hindsight, I think the reason why everybody was okay with that is that even though we were putting forth a very kind of liberal editorial stance, some of the most conservative Michigan legislatures also believe the criminal justice system is broken and it needs to be reformed. So across the board, everybody was like, yep, it's broken. Disagree on why it's broken, but they had no problem with us doing it. So we just now... We were supposed to install, open it last summer, last spring, 2020, but we we're just opening it because our museum reopens this Friday. Um, our opening exhibit on called I Voted Michigan Struggle for Suffrage, where we trace voting rights in Michigan from statehood all the way to the present day. And a large part of it obviously is surrounded by the now past 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. But we also talk about different attempts to disenfranchise over history, voters of color and all of that stuff. So we'll see how that, how that goes. Exhibits are one thing, but I think one of my goals is because it's much easier to do, it doesn't cost as much, is to really push the envelope with public programming. We did the Rock Your Mocks series, which I never really liked the name, but I inherited it. And it's a national movement, but I thought we should have our own, where we did a speaker series inviting Indigenous speakers from Michigan's federally recognized tribes to talk about issues, contemporary issues that are important to them in their culture to raise awareness within non-Indigenous communities. And that was widely popular. And we did it in Detroit a few times to, with good attendance. So things like that. And I, it's a, so so I, yeah, to answer your question, so far so good. You know, I've got a, a staff, a leadership here that really supports taking a more editorial stance and we've received very little pushback. You know, we had to do media walkthroughs with the public information office at the DNR before we opened the exhibit just so they knew what was in it. So if they heard any wind from people, they could handle it, but nothing. That is really good to hear. So like <laughs> it usually, maybe, I don't know, this, whenever I'm usually an optimist, but whenever I go pessimistic, it's because I think about, editorial control being like misused and everything like that and being restricted which is like well, I'm like I'm never leaving DHS I'm staying here forever we, we we've talked about it a bit but where do you see the the field going where do you see public history uh what direction is it heading in 
Oh, that's a really good question. What I what I guess I can say what I'm hopeful for. I well, I will say that this man, this COVID has really caused me to be isolated. So I'm not as plugged into the network um, as I used to be. But I consciously spent a ton of time during COVID and actually have two different networks of museum colleagues, most of which I did not know very well before COVID. Like we were acquaintances. We'd see each other at conferences we served, but we weren't super close. That forms um, Zoom monthly book clubs to talk about. And it's all we're all white women because hello, museum history museum field. We are dominant, you know, the dominant about how we could educate ourselves on anti-racism and um, really ensure that we were doing the self-work we needed to be able to do the real work in our jobs because you can't divorce the two. You can't say you're for racial justice and equity if you're not willing to do the personal work. You just can't. It's just, you can't. So um, because of them, we really, and we're all Gen Xers. <laughs> so um, we were really pushing ourselves to like get in touch with some of the the more activist, you know, radical views. And so I, 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 what, the reason why I'm bringing this up is that last summer there was, I don't even know if they're still doing it, but they, the whole death to museums uh, virtual conference thing came out. And so we, we would watch all of their stuff and then have discussions about it. And some of it was kind of like, yeah, that's like basically what you're demanding your institution do is basically shut itself down because it cannot sustain what you're suggesting. It's clear that you don't have any experience in administration or budget, but I understand where you're coming from. And some of them were just some crazy radical, awesome ideas that I was like, I want to do that. I want to do that. You know, like I remember, you know, again, I'm getting on tangents, but Kate Baker and I used to talk when we were at Detroit Historical, you know, we read, <laughs> it's so funny. We spent that whole year and a half and putting what that $2.5 million into renovating the whole museum right before we started thinking about viewing things through a racial equity lens. So, you know, we did all of those renovations without doing any of the things that we would do today in regards to inclusion and talking to stakeholders. And that's just kind of funny. But the one gallery we didn't touch was Frontiers to Factory, the the early, you know, 1701 to 1901. And I remember at one time, Kate Baker and I were walking through it going, oh, there's so many problems in this gallery. And then we were like, you know, it would be fun if we just kind of like stripped all the interpretation out of it and then like make it a new community gallery where we invite a different group to come in and tell their story in this time period in Detroit on the walls. And, uh, you know, and then just have it a change in gallery of different perspectives from different communities. And I think Jamon Jordan really helped spark that because I was so impressed with his ability to come and watch through our very colonial perspective museum and call out the really cool diverse stories that we either missed or just touched on and build this really robust story. I don't know. Now I feel like now I'm totally rambling. What was the question? <laughs> no, that was awesome. Uh, okay. Like I asked you where you think the field is going and I think oh, right. exactly where it's going. We, yeah. Like you're like everyone, we're not even, we're not questioning just older decisions. Like we're we're questioning recent decisions, especially yeah. in in a in a field where money is always tight. Yeah. Uh, like for Frontiers of Factories, we were so close, so close to renovating Frontiers of the Factories, and then COVID hit, and all of our money disappeared. Yes. <laughs> sometimes, some like sometimes it's is it's as easy as taking down a few panels and putting up new ones and changing them that way. But sometimes you're solely reliant on tour guides to change the perspective of the space that you're operating in and it during covid you can't have tour guides you can barely have people in there so you definitely can't have a tour guide yeah it's i think that's the one thing that i'm having to work you know as i'm doing this work and as i'm seeing you know and again you know i i I, my job during the detroit historical museum renovation of 2012 was to write all the exhibit text i worked with writers and i edited it 
and all of that. You know, Joel wrote, Joel and I, man, every word that's in that museum, I touched and I approved. And I look back now and I'm like, oh, we missed an opportunity. Am I beating myself up about it? No, because that's where I was at the time. And unfortunately, opportunities to update exhibit are few and far between because it costs so much darn money. And so, and that's where I get stuck right now. We have, we finished uh, the state museum, which is just like a visual timeline of history. You kind of just go through a circle and go up and then you start in, you know, the end of the glacier period and you end in 1960 or 1960s because we ran out of space, but we redid the first part of like the pre-European, you know, and then we've had this plan now for three years to redo the statehood gallery and called it defining Michigan being instead of the colonial state we have not been able to raise money to execute the design that we have created and it can be so frustrating when you see the need for change and you know how to get there but things like money stand in the way and I think that's going to be the latest to change and it's definitely an issue that I need to work with because if I'm going to grow in both my management experience but also my museum experience has kind of come to terms with the fundraising side which I can say this is a total bias this is not a positive bias but just to have um, just really like ugh, fundraising is gross you have to schmooze rich people and sell them things and there's no integrity in it and blah, blah, blah. And that's not necessarily true, but that's how I feel about it. And it's, it's not a fair, it's not a fair thing, but I'm really struggling right now as we're trying to raise money for the grant house. And this will explain like the, the two worlds that we still live in. We desperately need money right now. The house is shrink wrapped like shrink wrapped, like shrinking shrink wrapped because it cannot, because the city was going to cite us for blight <laughs> because we literally moved this house and put the two pieces together and it has no windows and half the siding fell off of it. And we had no money to do anything with it. And winter was coming. So we shrink wrapped it and we have no money. And so right now, and I'm all on the social justice, like we're going to turn this into a place where we can really explore the, the complexities of their marriage and their lives and their issues with slavery and their stance and how it changed over time and, you know, use this as a truth and reconciliation project. Yet the only people who are interested in giving money right now are the traditional, very wealthy white folks who want to glorify Grant's amazing legacy. So I'm doing all this work with Urban Detroit in the, or the farm that we're on the property with that, that has legitimate issues with this house being placed on their property and trying to build trust and and show them that I that I can be trusted that we can be trusted meanwhile our fundraising staffs going on having parties for rich people and, and creating brochures that are red white and blue and we're going to glorify Ulysses S. Grant and the disconnect hurts my brain so much and I have like a zero tolerance for it and then sometimes that's when I get in these meetings and I'm getting all riled up and I look at my colleagues who my boss and then the museum director who also are powerful passionate about, but they see the long game and they don't get baited like I do. <laughs> so, uh, but I just, you know, I'm just like, I can't do it. I, you know, and I said to them, don't you realize that you're selling them something that when, when this gets done, it's not going to be what you're promising. Don't you worry that we will never get a donation from them again, because I'm not going to make it into the historic house museum. They think they're getting, you know? So anyway, that's my long rambly story about how the field is changing, but we still have a ways to go until everything catches up and funding fundraising, I think is going to be the hardest bit of it all. It's hard to keep going because that was such a great ending to it. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, damn it. And that's funny because I was just thinking, wait, did I just say anything that'll get me in trouble? <laughs>
one of like one of the things I really wanted to get at with this podcast and show people or at least help people understand is what is the difference if there is one between history and public history? Do you consider yourself a public historian, a historian, or is it just semantics? Um, you know, there are many different answers to this question. I guess for me, the path that I went is I just wanted to work in a museum. I went and got a history degree so I could get into the museum studies program program I wanted that was literally history museum studies. So I did a scholarly master's paper, you know, master's thesis, as well as doing my practicums for museum studies. And then I got affiliated with the American Association for State and Local History, which is like, the only way I can describe it is it's like votech history. Do you know what I mean? Instead of writing academic papers, we like take history and we're the vocational tech people uh, you know that like my my museum director colleague is a phd and i was like oh you're the historian i'm like history botech but um, for me, public history never really entered my brain until maybe the last 10 years, which is which is not because it's a new thing. It's just the trajectory that I took. Um, so, you know, I never been never been to or really even connected to the National uh, Council on Public History. To me, they seem they say they do public history, but they seem more academic to me. I don't know, you know, and so um, I think I like the idea of creating a definition of public history. That's the whole purpose of doing it is to take the incredible necessary required research that academic historians do and um, you know find ways to and then the research that we do but make it relevant to a broad public audience and I don't know if that's the right definition or not and I don't know that I call myself a public historian I call myself a museum nerd <laughs> But I, I think it's a bigger, it's a definite way bigger bucket than museum studies. And I learned that from Wayne State because I got asked early on when they were putting their masters of public history together to be on an advisory for the museum side of things and learning, oh, public history can also go into public policy. There's like a lot of really cool things you can do with a public history degree other than just working in a museum. So maybe there is a need for it, but my little slice of the pie is is very history and museums and working with the public and helping facilitate understanding. I'm in the same vein. I often explain public history as interpretation. So I listen to what historians are saying, and then I can tell everybody else what they're saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Before we go, I asked Toby to tell me about a historian or a public historian that she looks up to, someone who has impacted her work or inspired her, someone who she feels that the public should know more about. Here's Toby talking about Tom Segrew. Well, my public historian person is probably more classified as a historian historian, but the his work has been read by more non-academics, particularly in Detroit area than anybody. And, and so that's why I would call him a public historian and that is Tom Segrew. Hands down, Tom Segrew, author of Origin of the Urban Crisis, which was kind of really helped change the narrative of um, Detroit in the mid 20th century and the, you know, urban renewal slash, you know, Negro removal of the city and, and really helped pub, you know, to a broad public audience change the narrative and how that history was told. And he continues to do so much. And I always admired him. But when I met him, um, I was able to successfully convince ASLH to invite him to be the keynote speaker for their conference in Detroit. And I got to sit down with him and his talk 
was one of the best that I have ever been to. He was so good at sharing his passion for history and his passion to this public audience in approachable ways. And why I love him is that I was sitting next to him before he went up on stage and watching him, the nerves, the butterflies that he had, how incredibly nervous he was to get up and speak. I was like, not only is he amazing, he's a human being. And uh, just, you know, a, a wonderful, genuine person as well as a historian. Totally geeking out on some Tom Segura. So if you hear this, Tom, I love you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Chat. Curator Chats is produced by Granville Avenue Productions. It is executive produced, edited, and hosted by myself, Billy Wallwinkle. Production assistance provided by Emily Wallwinkle and Brendan Roney. A special thanks to Toby Voigt for sitting down to chat with me today. For more information, visit historywithbilly.com. And now, to leave you with a quote from author Kurt Vonnegut. History is merely a list of surprises. It can only prepare us to be surprised yet again. Until next time, everyone.